This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for this World Refugee Day event, co-hosted by UNSW Law and Justice, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, and Refugee Advice and Casework Services. I'm going to begin by acknowledging the Bedigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And uh, on the occasion of World Refugee Day, I also wanted to uh, acknowledge the unique role that First Nations people have played in welcoming asylum seekers and refugees to their land. I'm thrilled to be joined today by amazing Sarah Dale, the Centre Director and Principal Solicitor at Refugee Advice and Casework Services. I'm sure you're all um, aware of the amazing work they do. You know, they're an independent community legal centre and the only organisation uh, that is dedicated to providing specialist legal services to, at, at no cost to people seeking asylum. And uh, for those of you that I have not yet had the pleasure to meet, I'm uh, Daniel Gezelbash, uh, the newly appointed Deputy Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. And today we are going to have a bit of an informal chat about uh, some issues facing refugees and asylum seekers in, in Australia. And we'll have some time at the end for questions, but I really encourage you um, if, to raise your hand if anything Sarah and I are saying triggers any questions or comments. Or that I think very happy to keep it very informal and dynamic. I think Sarah expressed her wish at the beginning to try and make it as interactive as possible. So please jump in um, whenever you like. And uh, we, Sarah and I thought it would be fun to kind of kick things off with some, you, you can't ask that style questions where <laughs> we, uh, so I'll echo some of the, sort of the negative sentiment we hear about asylum seekers and refugees um, in, in, in the media. So in that spirit, Sarah, there's been some talk now of the, the, the change of government and the fact that it's going to, the boat's going to start up again. Uh, opposition leader Peter Dutton has been in the media saying that the boats have already started. Petrifying title, opposition minister <laughs> Peter Dutton, but yes, <laughs> the boats have already started. Um, I too would like to acknowledge that we're all meeting on land where sovereignty was never ceded, and given that it is World Refugee Day, I would also like to acknowledge any people in the room or those in our community that have arrived as people seeking asylum or refugees as well and celebrate their struggle. Um, and maintain that I will always be in solidarity with those people. Uh, Opposition Minister Peter Dutton, we've, we've had a long relationship uh, with Minister Dutton uh, and his fear uh, and, and quite frankly gross rhetoric around people that seek asylum by boat. I really struggle with the conversation that Australia is having, having right now about boat arrivals. We haven't seen a boat land in Australia since 2014. We have maintained a position of towbacks. Whilst both governments, both sides of politics support towbacks, I don't personally support towbacks, but you know, both sides of government support towbacks, I simply don't understand what the real fear is uh, because they simply cannot arrive, they do not arrive, uh, and we saw on election day that, that boats are returned. I have many issues with the fact that we don't properly assess people, that we don't process their claims, that we don't hear what they have to say, but the simple reality is that boats cannot 
will not arrive whilst both sides of politics support tobacks and therefore maintaining policies in the vein of preventing votes just it doesn't make any logical sense because votes simply cannot arrive. Maybe delving into like the, the, the politics of everything a little bit. So is it, I mean, you, I think the political orthodoxy has been that you know, harsh border control measures are what the public wants. So you know, are such measures a, a, a vote winner? I don't think that they are a, a vote winner, especially not anymore. Uh, we saw that there was a, a, an SMS on the election day that a vote had been intercepted, intercepted um, and we really didn't see any response to that SMS uh, or that announcement, but for people's really critical view on the fact that that happened on election day and perhaps the uncanny timing uh, of that vote being intercepted and of course of the announcement of that vote arriving. We know that there is now an investigation uh, into why that was announced, how it was announced, what came about. What we saw though, there's a lot of conversation about the Teal movement uh, and we've seen a lot of independents elected in the last election, all of which had positive policies supporting that of people seeking asylum and refugees. So whilst uh, we're seeing that more broadly, you'll see in the media and commentary that that is a win for climate and it absolutely is a win for climate. But from where I'm sitting, it's also a win for compassionate refugee policies because not one of them advocated for harsher remedies. Not one of them advocated uh, for you know, indefinite detention. They all seem to be supporting permanent protection. So really it was a win for compassion uh, and it really is an indicator that the Australian people have awoken to how it is we treat people seeking asylum uh, and how it is that we treat refugees. And I don't think it's what Australia stands for or what Australia wants. Uh, so I'm really heartened to see that that, has, that shift seems to be happening. I think we were seeing some mixed signals from the coalition on this as well before, before the election. Because on the, on the one hand, for the first time, we saw them like indicate indicators that they might see the sort of harsher elements of their border protection policies not being popular. And we felt that the people who were medically evacuated from Nauru and Manus Island be released from um, detention in hotels. Uh, but then, you know, they seem to shift gears on election day um, and you know, send out that SMS. So, I mean, I don't know if that's a indicates that there's some you know, disagreement or uh, yeah, un unsureness about what the approach is. But they seem, I mean, their earlier moves really, to me, really seem to indicate that you know, these policies might not be the vote winner they once were. I think we've seen a lot of tension in the way that they're speaking about those issues and the way that they're responding to those issues. Uh, you know, you're right. On, on one hand, we saw people released from the Park Hotel. That was obviously and could only have been a political decision to continue to detain them. To release them is also a political decision to have done so. Um, they will have only done that because there was a political will for that decision and that political will is built by what the people want. Uh, so it, it's impossible to separate those two. There is a clear tension uh, in the opposition now in that you know want to align with what public of Australia is calling for, but also want to continue what has been their messaging, which is that of strong borders. Uh, and, and I hope that, you know, maybe perhaps in opposition, they will realise that Australia wants security, but security doesn't need to be cruelty. Uh, and I hope that we will see a separation of those two policies across the whole of Parliament, not just within the current government. And going back to the, you can't ask, ask that, that style question, 
So, I mean, I'm, you know, asylum seekers and refugees are a significant, um, so they come with significant financial costs, and can we afford to be generous in this uh, tight fiscal environment? That's a really interesting thing for us to analyse. We know that to have people in our community that are vulnerable, there are going to need to be supports in place for vulnerable community members. Let's, let's be real about that. But we also have a massive skill shortage. We're also seeing massive areas, particularly in our regions, where we can't find nurses, doctors. We saw over the past 18 months, you know, farmers in the region throwing all their crops out because they didn't have enough people to, to pick the fruit. We see aged care, you know, lacking in enough people to support that environment. We've also now seen the, the ALP announce, we've seen the New South Wales government announce, and we've seen the Victorian government announce that they want to increase our childcare industry. And one of the biggest barriers to uh, increasing childcare services is staffing. Well, why can't we align those two things? Why can't we look at our skills sh shortages, look at where we need further development in our communities, uh, and at the same time support those with a humanitarian need to come to Australia. So I would really like to see the conversation about humanitarian arrivals in Australia shift. Uh, already I know many people seeking asylum, many people on temporary visas are in a lot of those industries. Um, they are nurses, they are aged care workers, they are working in the medical field. Um, they've been the, the Woolworths delivery truck drivers. You know, they've been critical people in our industries over the past two years and they're also industries with massive gaps. So why can't we align those two things and work a little bit more collectively to solve a humanitarian crisis but also you know, bring immense benefits to Australia and it, it should really, there's, there's a lot of cost benefit um, as well as potential implications. Dan, do you think there's risks in, in framing things in that way when we're sort of doing public advocacy and uh, that, that, you know, it does focusing on sort of the economic benefits and economic con contribution somehow devalue the sort of humanitarian needs? I agree that is really tricky and, and I've just said let's marry those two <laughs> things together but at the same time I'm, I'm very cautious of kind of the good refugee rhetoric. I'm very cautious of the fact we don't want to establish a framework where it is expected of you to do something because Australia has bestowed you this opportunity. I find all of that incredibly gross um, and, and not something that I want to support but I also think that there is opportunity there and it doesn't have to be for all and it doesn't have to be for the majority, but it's just about having a, a more frank, compassionate and pragmatic conversation. Uh, but yes, mm -hmm. I agree. We, we don't want to get too far into it and possibly I'm in a room of friends and so I'm feeling a little bit more mm -hmm. excited about it, but, uh, but yeah. yeah. But, I, mean, I mean, it's important to talk about it because you know, we're hearing, you have to counter the arguments about the fact that there are some sort of economic burden. So I mean, if, if those arguments are being made in the public sphere, we should be responding to those arguments. And I think, you know, of every society, the majority of people want to give to that community which they're in. That's what makes a community great. Uh, and so to think that that doesn't exist in the refugee community, I think, is, is nonsense. Uh, and so it's about really marrying what does exist, I think, as opposed to, you know, setting an expectation or um, setting what is required of people in order to be recognised as refugees or humanitarians entrants in Australia. But it's about seeing that there is always those pluses and minuses in, in every conversation and in every community. So speaking of those pluses and minuses, there's been a, a lot of rhetoric recently, particularly from the coalition about um, 
criminals uh, living in our community, non-nationals, non asylum seekers and migrants more broadly, and the need for stronger powers to be able to deal with those. I do think we need stronger powers in, th in, that, in that regard? Absolutely not. Australia has one of the most rigorous refugee determination processes. We uh, have a higher bar in Australian international, in Australian law to be protected as a person seeking asylum in Australia than we would in an international context. We also have incredibly high character tests. We have incredibly high security screening. Uh, it, it's not possible to pass any of that if there is, of course, any threat to the community. I just, I simply don't accept that it exists. The Minister has already extraordinary personal powers. I mean, the Minister for Immigration was able to cancel and deport the greatest tennis player in the world, Novak Djokovic, with the endless resources that he had without any increase of powers. And that was simply on the basis that it wasn't in the public interest for him to be here. So if you have that amount of power, why do you need more? Um, it's just, it's simply part of this strong borders, you know, fear rhetoric that we see. There is absolutely sufficient powers of the minister to, to ensure that the community is safe and it's, it's really, it's a false rhetoric. So I don't want to give Peter Dutton too much airtime, but maybe one, one more from Peter Dutton. So he has referred to the, the children from the, um, the Bilawila Bil 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 family as, as anchor babies, echoing the rhetoric of Donald Trump in the US that uh, you know, they were born for the purpose of assisting their parents' um, asylum application. What do you think about that comment? That was one of the most infuriating comments I think that we saw surrounding the family that are from Biloela. And one of the things that I really, it really, I really struggled that it wasn't kind of stamped out as a myth because Australian law has no concept of an anchor baby. If you were born in Australia to temporary visa holders, if you were born in Australia to someone that has been going through the offshore processing uh, policy, then you assume the status of your parents. Australia doesn't have that policy. It's just simply not possible to have a child in Australia and therefore remain here. The fact that the Minister for Immigration, responsible for our immigration laws and policies, was out there spinning what we have to call is frankly like a direct lie because it was not in law that that could have been a plan or a policy or, or even an entitlement to this family. Uh, no, it's incredibly frustrating. It's just completely not aligned with Australia's laws and there's just, there is no such thing in Australian law as anchor babies, uh, even if that was a concept that we should even entertain as a thing. Um, but some, moving on to some welcome news, the, the Nagatilligan family have been returned to Bilalila. Um, is that a sign of things to come with the new government? Look, for that family, I am absolutely stoked. I'm stoked for their legal team. They have worked immensely hard to, to protect that family. I am I'm thrilled. Um, it's wonderful to see a rural community in Australia wrap around a family like this. From where I'm sitting, though, there are 26,000 other people that have not received that love and attention. Um, there are thousands of people from Sri Lanka that have been returned to Sri Lanka without their claims processed. There are thousands of people in our community right now that also went through a similarly flawed process that this family went through, that have not got that support, that are not being afforded the opportunity to stay here in our communities. 
Uh, and and I really struggle with that. I feel, you know, I feel disheartened by the fact that we, uh, as a community, are are able to just see one family and and throw everything we can towards that family, and as we should. But I would really like us to now have some critical thinking as a community and go, you know what, what we've seen in this family is not the exception. They are the rule. Uh, and we need to make sure that that rule is now applying to the tens of thousands of others in our community that absolutely also should be afforded the right to return to their homes here in Australia uh, and establish their life as, as this family is hopefully going to be afforded. And. Um with the change of government, do you think we're going to see that or what can we expect from the new government? The lawyer in me is always very, um, uh, like I, I want to celebrate and I, I want to bring out the glitter and the pom-poms uh, and be over the moon um, by what is, what is promised. What I would like to see, I will celebrate when the promises are delivered. Um, until that time, I am reserving all celebrations. The current government have committed to the conversion of temporary protection visas or safe haven enterprise visas to permanent visas. Um, I hope to see that that is delivered and I hope that we do that in what is the most painless and expedient way because people have been waiting now for 10 years to have their lives settled. I really hope that we see that change and I think we will see that change. Touch wood, all the wood in the room, everyone please touch. <laughs> Uh, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. The, the ALP support offshore processing. Um, they have not agreed to resettle many of those that were, uh, that were in Nauru and PNG uh, with a resettlement plan. You know, people that were affected by offshore processing, they only have two pathways to resettlement. That's the US, that is New Zealand. Even if we fulfill all those resettlement places offered, there are still hundreds of people that miss out. The ALP don't have a solution for that yet. The ALP have also supported a number of those uh, character bills which we saw strengthen those powers. So whilst I am heartened that we are working with a government that seems prepared to listen to us, um, certainly I've not been called un-Australian by anyone in the current government as we had been called by the previous government, there doesn't seem to be that same sense of resentment towards the legal fraternity that support people seeking asylum, which is a really nice shift. Uh, but I, I hope for more uh, and I'll be stoked when we see some of those promises delivered uh, and we'll be there to ensure and hold to account those promises but there are many, many more things that we still need to do to make sure that the rights are preserved for refugees and people seeking asylum. And if you had a blank slate and free reign to change Australia's policies in, in any way that you saw fit, what would be your top priorities? Number one, abolish offshore processing, process people here in Australia. Two, and equally first, would be abolish temporary protection visas. Ensure people can access permanent lives here in Australia, including access to family reunion. That's one of the biggest reasons that people need permanency, is so that they can re, um, recommence their lives with their families. I would abolish Australia's definition of who is a refugee. I would abolish the Immigration Assessment Authority completely, you know, take out the whole fast track process. Uh, there's more. We would make sure that people can access financial supports while they're waiting. We would eliminate all these bars that we put on people. I mean, we were negotiating in our team this morning. We have people on temporary visas and their children are being born at different times, so their babies are getting different dates to their parents, to their sisters, to their brothers. We are absolutely in this 
incessantly complicated, arbitrary process that just let's wipe the whole process out and start again. And I, there are so many things, but yeah, offshore, temporary, family yeah. reunion would be a great start. And more funding for Legal services yes, thank you for mentioning that. Um, uh, my, my fundraising team would be furious that I didn't say that first, but I, I think that, yes, we need to be funding services that support this community. That was purely a political decision. Um, we fund the Tenants Union, we fund the Welfare Rights Centre, we fund our local community legal centres. Why would we not fund community legal centres that support people seeking asylum and refugees. It's simply a political decision um, and it has nothing to do with the value of our service. And so it absolutely, that is something that should be reinstated. But so too should, uh, you know, what's known as SRSS, which is financial mm -hmm. support for people seeking asylum. You know, what was really horrible that people probably don't realise that happened is that during the COVID crisis in New South Wales, we went around and we made sure that people that were homeless were put in hotels um, so that they were not impacted by, by COVID to the same extent uh, as they might have been on the street. Well, temporary visa holders were exempt from that. People were literally picked up, taken to these places, realised that they're a temporary visa holder and exited. We really just need to remove that distinction of a person's status when it comes to welfare and care. Uh, and so I'm going to add that to my priority list too. Great. And I guess we've already touched on some of this, but you know, what are the most pressing, pressing issues faced by RAC's clients right now? I think the thing that we hear the most, and I'd love for anyone in my team to, to pipe in or, or um, disagree, is that certainty, that, that, that limbo has an enormous impact on people. Um, it impacts their mental health, it impacts their ability to get work, it impacts their ability to find housing. It's just really impossible to, to lay roots and settle in that state of limbo. Um, but that limbo, as I touched on before, prevents access to family reunion. Um, and so often I've, I've had conversations with people who have said to me, I would even accept the TPV, I would accept having to go through this process every three years if my wife could be here with me, if my child could just be here with me um, and we could go through that process together. I think the impacts and that separation of family reunion, we, uh, of family separation, we all experienced that during COVID. All of us were separated from someone we loved um, during COVID, be that because of a local government area, be that because of a state border, be that because of international borders. There's no one in Australia that can say they don't know what that feels like anymore. And so we really need to do better. And we, we all recognise what impact that had on us for a few months. Imagine that for 10 years. Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's that state of limbo, but there's also what that limbo creates, which is that, that that separation from your family, which is just endemic, and it's it's just it's cruelty for cruelty's sake. But it, it isn't part of the problem. It's not just the policies we have. But if we were to get policy change and have these pathways, there's <coughs> incredible delays we're seeing at the department right now for processing. I think I mean, having just having those pathways in paper theoretically is one thing. People actually being able to access them in a timely manner is another. Yeah, that's. That's a real problem. I think that processing has become uh, in, insanely long. You know, we have incredible multiple year waiting periods at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. We know that the family reunion process that existed for those on, on permanent visas takes an excruciating amount of time. We've all seen what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, the RACS team have been working to, you know, submit 
visa applications through the offshore humanitarian process. We know that there are now places, but you know, I have applications that I submitted in August that I still don't have even an acknowledgement letter on. Um, and that's after all these announcements that we've heard from the government uh, that have been supported by the current government also that said, you know, we're going to award these extra places and we're going to have extra places for people in the family reunion stream and we're going to expedite processing. Well, I'm not seeing any of that on the ground. Um, all of that is about funding. All of that is about money. Um, if we perhaps allocated the same amount of resources um, to processing visa applications as we do chasing Centrelink debts, we might not have this much of a problem. And it's, I mean, the problem is across the board. It's not just with asylum seeker refugees. No, it's the whole immigration yeah. system. And um, I think, I think there's potential for for some public backlash <laughs> if certain visa categories are extradited while others are not. It really is a, a, a structural thing. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognise that there are people in other visa pathways that have very strong humanitarian mm. grounds to be here in Australia also. You know, there are people that are applying through parent visa categories. There are people that have particular skills that are going through the skills process. Um, they too might have humanitarian grounds to come to Australia. And maybe we need uh, to implement a way that we can see, you know, who, who has those humanitarian reasons and what other pathways are they coming through and how do we process them? You know, I have family members that are also looking to bring their family members across from other countries and not from a refugee background. And they too would be, you know, devastated mm. to add another two, three years on their family's applications to join them here in Australia. But I think because of this negativity and this, you know, horrible, I keep harping on about this, this horrible rhetoric around migrants and refugees and people seeking asylum, um, that that has, that has meant that there isn't the will to resolve a lot of those issues. But I think if we could just kind of shift how we think about that and see that as this is a human issue, this is an issue for us as a community, this is going to better us as a people, then maybe those resources would shift to really start addressing what is a very broken system. I mean, how, how do we do that? How do we have those conversations? How do we shift that mindset? And you know, are we seeing the start of it already? I think we're starting to see the start of it. I, I think that you know the conversations that we were having in 2014 are, are definitely not the conversations that we're having now. Uh, I think the fact that people cared that people were in hotels in the middle of Melbourne, I think the fact that people have cared about the family from Biloela, uh, I think that the fact that there are many temporary <coughs> visa holders that have now been in the community for 10 years, uh, I, I would say that the majority of Australians are having some interaction, are having some, some touch point with that community and that's ultimately going to change their position. One of the things that, that always used to frustrate me is having conversations with people and they would say, oh yeah, I've met this guy, he was, he came to Australia as a refugee, like he's a really good, he's a really good bloke, but he's quite different to the ones that you see in the news. And it's like, well, actually no, like he is, he is the ones that you see in the news. Like making um, the community realise, and I said it before about the family from Biloela, that they aren't the exception, they are the rule. And we just need to make people realise that all those interactions that you're having, you know, the, the kids that are going to your schools and the, your childcare workers and your aged care nurses that you're meeting that are from that background or that have arrived in Australia needing that hum humanitarian protection, they are the rule, not the exception. And I think we're getting better at recognising that as a community. And um, 
going back to I guess the changes we can see or the changes we'd like to see. The, I guess our focus has been primarily on Australia and Australian policy. Uh, what more can Australia do internationally and, and in the region to? I mean, the first thing that I would like to see is lifting the ban on the youth, Indonesian resettlement. That creates incredible, incredible tension in that region. Um, again, purely a political decision. Can't really justify it pragmatically. Uh, and when we go to talking about crises, like we want to do more for people from Afghanistan, and the government says, well, we can't go into Afghanistan, you know, it's not secure, and the Taliban won't let us in, so, you know, we can't do anything about that crisis. It's like, well, actually, you can, because one of the biggest populations in Indonesia right now that cannot be resettled are those from Afghanistan. So I think that um, we can think more pragmatically, we can engage more with our partners in the region. We could assist with processing, for instance. You know, UNHCR uh, has never had to process the number of cases ever um, that they're looking at right now. Well, we could throw some resources at supporting that. Uh, I, I'm, I don't have the solution to, to the big picture, and but my position is always we don't need to have the solution to the bigger picture. That doesn't need to prevent us from doing what we can at home and doing what we can around us. So I don't have the big global solution, but I do think that Australia can be doing more and it would it would be but a drop in the ocean. But it's also just about the way we present ourselves, interact with other countries in, our, in, in the region. And you know, we've been going it alone for so long now and the emphasis has been on shifting responsibility to other states. And, and you know, hopefully there's opportunity for a reset in terms of taking a more cooperative approach. But I guess you know, the question is, uh, can we undo the harm to our reputation that has occurred over the past 10 years to have a reset like that? I don't know that we can undo the harm to our reputation of what we have done the past 10 years. And you know what? I don't think we deserve to undo the harm we did to our reputation. We as a country should be held to account for what we have done to people. Uh, I don't want to see our reputation unharmed from that. I want us held to account. Uh, but we can move forward and we can shift um, how we do things. And, and I think we can, we can say what we did was wrong. You know, what we did was wrong uh, and there are other ways that we can do things, and so we're committed to doing that. And I would, I would love to see that from Australia, and I would love to see that from this government uh, in particular, because they do have the position to come now and say, all right, reset, new government, new leadership, new policies. Um, we've learned from the past. I struggle with that learn from the past concept because things like temporary protection visas <laughs> we had in the past, we did a lot of learning about that. We knew they were harmful. We knew the implications of that. We knew that it was cruel, it was unnecessary, it didn't do what they said they were going to do. Um, and in fact, we only made them crueler because temporary protection visas round one, you could eventually act as permanent um, pathways. These temporary visas, you cannot. So we only went crueler. Uh, so I, I don't want our reputation um, completely reset. I want us held to account and I want us to move forward. I mean, it must be, as you touch on, it must be very, very frustrating <coughs> to see the same mistakes made over and over again. And it's not just, you know, within Australia, you, know, you have now Australia's policy being held up as a model in other countries. And, you know, we have all this you know, doc doc documented evidence of the failure and the harm of the policies 
in Australia? Is it frustrating now seeing other countries following suit? I think frustrating doesn't quite <laughs> capture how I feel. I think it's like it's heartbreaking. It's it's soul destroying to see other countries pick up these policies and, and really replicate what Australia has done, particularly um, seeing that the Rwanda uh, plan from the UK. And you just think, how is it possible that they could possibly think this is a good idea given everything um, that is before us? But that's why it's so important for the community to say, actually, we don't stand for that. Mm -hmm. We don't, this doesn't reflect what we want. We aren't so scared that you must send people away. We do expect better of you. Uh, and, and really, it's governments make decisions and do things based on the people. Uh, and so there's only so long we can say that doesn't represent us. You need to do something that says that doesn't represent us or that's what's going to represent you. Um, so I think I get frustrated in the doesn't represent us and then sit back because mm -hmm. unless you take action, unless you do something that shows that these are actions that don't represent you or represent the community, then it's going to continue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think, it's, it's, so Rihanna, do you want to jump in oh, there? Oh, sorry, I was just, um, something that I've personally been grappling with, thinking about the, the subtle shift in uh, public perception around asylum and refugees. I mean, there has been a shift, and the Bill Wheeler family the uh, media attention that has come from that. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is what we within the legal fraternity, within the academic fraternity, who are supporters of asylum, um, supporters of refugees, what sort of tangible steps can we take to support community legal centres, to support shifts in the public? Uh, because bearing in mind, as you mentioned quite rightly, it's public perception that often dictates uh, action that governments and politicians are taking. And so I just thought I'd want to just ask what some of your thoughts or ideas are about how we can tangibly start to shift that and leverage this current change in momentum um, to capitalise on that. I'm not a campaigner, so um, I don't have a good answer to that. But I think, you know, from a real kind of grassroots perspective, you know, if you get called by a pollster, answer those calls. Like, like that's just one thing that we can all do. If you get a, a, a polling call, take the calls, give your opinion. That's one of the key shifts of shifting politicians in saying, this is in the polls right now. Polls support what you're doing. Polls don't support what you're doing. You've got to get into the focus groups too. Got to get into the focus groups, got to get into the polls. Um, social media tracking is really important. You know, if posts are shared and articles are shared and commentary is made, you know, Twitter is the work of the devil in, in, some, in some aspects, but it's also incredibly powerful. Uh, and so I think we often discount the power of social media. Um, that's just something from a grassroots level that I know has a big impact and I know our decision makers look at and think about and, and interpret. Um, I would love, we need some campaigners in the room to tell us how do we really shift and hone and, and carry that forward. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really difficult question and it's one that I'm I trying to get an evidence base on through research. And the, I mean, I think it's extremely difficult to change people's views on this through, and th there's been, I mean, there's been debates in the 
refugee sector, about you know, different types of framings of messages. And you know, we kind of touched on some of those debates now about you know, whether you appeal to sort of intrinsic um, moral, uh, moral frameworks, the, the inherent right or wrong of something, or whether you talk about in extrinsic terms like economic benefits and costs. And uh, we ran an online experiment, so testing this around offshore processing. And there were both framings were equally um, ineffective in terms of shifting, shifting public opinion. So I think there's a lot more work to be done also in, in terms of academic research, in terms of trying to identify those framings which work to, to shift public opinion. But I think at, at the end of the day, it's, it's your powers at the ballot box. And you know, like the, even this example of the UK the Rwanda deal, they don't care, the UK government doesn't care about whether policy was successful or not, doesn't care what the impact was on the refugees. They have advice that says that it was successful at the ballot box in Australia, and they want to recreate that in the UK. And you know, if we can show that, no, hey, even in Australia, no, it's not successful, and we don't support these policies, then people are going to try and recreate those electrical, uh, electoral benefits in other countries. I think there's also this real, what continues in Australia is this us and them narrative, us and them. Uh, and we need the them to be seen as the us. Uh, and we've seen that with the, the family from Biloela. They worked at the, the meat works. The girls, you know, were in the community. The mum was friends with the other mums. We just need to get better at raising those stories, raising those profiles, hearing those voices, seeing, seeing the them as the us. Um, and that's what shifts minds because people have fears for themselves and people have fears for their loved ones and people that they can see and can relate to and can hear from. And so I think one of the most important things that we can be doing is making sure we're elevating the voices of those that have arrived on humanitarian grounds or those that are part of our refugee community so that in the public narrative, they become the us. Uh, and that's what I think will shift mentality. Thank you very much for that question, Rihanna. And in that spirit, maybe we'll open it up to, to other questions. I've been out of the country for a while, so I don't know what happened after Ukraine. I don't know what's happened here, like what is being done for the Ukrainians, given that the government made a statement that they yeah. were going to accept, etc. How is it going through? I, I mean, as uh, I would say that Australia has. What Australia has done for the community from those impacted by the conflict in Ukraine has been rather exemplary. We uh, essentially opened our borders. We allowed people from Ukraine to make applications to come to Australia. Essentially, a lot of them applied on tourist visas uh, to come into Australia, land in Australia, uh, and then anyone from Ukraine has been afforded the opportunity to apply for a three-year visa to remain in Australia. Uh, and once on that three-year visa, yes, some there there is a time frame you have to wait for your initial visa to expire. But then once you are on that that three-year visa, you can go to our schools, you can access Medicare, you can access whatever welfare supports you might need. Um, so I I think that what we have seen or how we have seen Australia respond to the invasion in Ukraine and how we have opened our hearts and our community and our borders. <laughs> and our visas to people that are fleeing that conflict, I would love to see Australia do that for other conflicts. Um, that should really be an example of how we should respond as a nation. Uh, and again, I would like that to be the rule, not the exception, and which it has been. Afghanistan in comparison, I would love to meet someone who's arrived on a tourist visa from Afghanistan in the past 12 months.
because I would say it would be less than the number of fingers on my hand. It would be very different. Um, why it is different? That's for other political commentators to, to discuss. Yes, Australia has increased its humanitarian intake, but that took almost 10 months of advocacy. Um, that took months of advocacy for the government to even recognise that we needed to increase our humanitarian intake. Uh, further to that, you know, we've, we've got a specific humanitarian intake. That humanitarian intake will, a big portion of that humanitarian intake will be filled by people already here in Australia. Um, it's, it's great that we have uh, expanded the number of people that will come, but as I've mentioned, I haven't really seen that expedited. Uh, we're, we're not seeing, you know, we're not seeing any of our family, our partner visa applications, things like that moving with any great speed. Uh, it, it has, those conflicts have been treated in very different ways, um, which is incredibly disheartening given Australia's 20 year involvement in Afghanistan. Any other questions? So uh, just a quote to you and Dan, um, just in terms of changing the um, of Labor's commitment to abolish temporary protection, um, has, has the government indicated some sort of time frame within which they're looking to implement that? It was committed that this would be one of the first promises that the Labor government would look to resolving. I think that was very clear that that's been one of their number one solutions to one of the many, many problems in Australia's processing. I don't think that we've been provided a clear deadline on what that is. I don't think we could advise or indicate what that could be. Um, we don't know what that process will look like. We don't know how it will be implemented. We don't know when. There's a lot of unanswered questions around that, which I would like answered pretty swiftly. Uh, I think from, you know, certainly from RAC's perspective, we fully respect that it's a new government, you've got a new job, it takes a while for you to find your feet. Um, but I think if we don't have answers in the next couple of months, people are gonna start getting pretty loud about this because it has been a, a devastating policy of Australia's refugee law uh, and it's something that the ALP had as a key election promise. Uh, I would say that there are many people that supported uh, ALP candidates because of their position on this uh, and so it has to be a policy, it has to be a promise that they fulfil fulfill quickly or will be held to account. So then they've costed for it, they costed for it in the in their costings they released before the election and um, the Cardinal Centre also has a policy brief coming out shortly which sort of set, sets out step by step what the government could do um, to, to resolve this. But I mean, there's a, a lot of, I guess, impatience and confusion in the refugee communities. I've had quite a few people contact me and say, oh, what's the process? How do I get my permanent visa now? And I have to be like, wait, hold on, nothing, nothing, nothing changed yet. I, I mean, I was speaking to a person last week that was saying, I don't need to apply for my visa. I'm going to get a permanent visa. And I'm going, no, <laughs> the process hasn't changed. The law hasn't changed. You need that temporary visa mm. to be considered for this permanent visa. So we're going to have a real problem if there isn't messaging about this quickly because there is absolute confusion um, and anticipation, and rightfully so. People have been told 
for 10 years just hold on you know i was one of the chief people telling people just mm. hold on if the government changes we will hopefully have a solution to this um so i really think the, the current government has a responsibility to message something as quickly as possible um because there is a lot of confusion there is a lot of angst and um the, it's only going to get more complicated the longer it drags on Thank you so much. Thank Sarah. you, Dan. It's been lovely chatting with you. It's always a pleasure. My, and my um, pleasure. a shout out to Parliament on King for the fantastic spread we had. And uh, if you want to learn more, please follow RACS and the Caldwell Centre on your socials and sign up to our mailing list. Thank you all so much again. Mm -hmm.